Conversations with Consequences. We're the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We are delighted and very honored to have with us Dr. Timothy Flanagan. He's a Catholic deacon, and he's also a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Albert Medical School of Brown University. Welcome, Dr. Flanagan. Oh, thanks so much. Thrilled to be there. Call me Tim. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, so we're very happy to have you because um, not just me, uh, but everybody in the nation, maybe across the world, with this uh, show is uh, syndicated internationally. Um, all of us are full of really uh, important questions because we're confused, we're worried, we're anxious. Many of us are dealing with very complicated situations at home. Maybe we have sick friends or family or elderly relatives that live with us or even elderly relatives that we have to take care of, that we have to supply, that we have to keep uh, busy and, and, and connected with. Maybe we're dealing with situations where our our bosses are calling us to come into work still, and we're wondering if that's safe. Um, what do you think, Dr. Flanagan? I, I guess I guess the situations are just endless, right? Everybody's own particular uh, world uh, is is crashing right now, and we're wondering how to manage. Exactly. I think this is really tough for all of us. One of the reasons there's such uncertainty is it's a new virus. So it's part of the coronavirus or cold virus family, but this virus is different because it attaches to the receptors on the cells and the lung, and so it can cause pneumonia, and a viral pneumonia can be serious. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some good news with it. We know kids tolerate getting this infection really quite well. They do get it. They can become mildly ill, but they recover quickly, and they also get a immune response, and that immune response is quite remarkable, and it is protective. We're still doing work, and others are doing research to find out how protective and for how long, but there is immunity to the virus, which is super encouraging. So we've been, you know, everybody's been surprised. I mean, the fact is that community transmission has really taken off. It is easy to spread this virus, very, very easy. And testing was usually not available early on. And so the virus, you know, shot around the globe because of global travel and meetings and so forth. And then it's easy to transmit. So it spread within the community and people weren't able to test and weren't able to detect it. And so now we're trying to play catch up. And the whole purpose of the catch up is to slow down the transmission of the virus. Doctor, you you brought up something right in the beginning, and and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to ask you this, because a lot of people have been asking me, and you probably have the answer, or you can tell us why we don't have the answer. Is this a a disease that we can catch twice? Are we going to be immune once this goes through the population? I do believe we will be immune. That, you know, I don't have all the answers, so as I say, there is immunity, which means you know, yes. Now, some people say yes, but what about five years from now, 10 years, 15 or 20? We just don't know. So there are a lot of questions, but there is immunity. That's also really important because Mm -hmm. it means that we'll probably be able to develop an effective vaccine too. So that's good news because we can mimic natural immunity with a vaccine. So I think we will be able to make really good progress there. 
Is this what happened in the flu pandemics in the past, the 1918 flu and maybe in 1957? Did, did, the, did, this, uh, did these flus sort of go through the whole population, infect most people, and then people developed an immunity, and then they went away? How does that work? Why does the flu happen and then goes away? Yes, that's exactly right. You get new strains of the flu where there isn't natural immunity within the population, and then you can get a big increase in infection. Now, in the flu epidemic of 1918, we also saw many bacterial infections which occurred on the heels of the viral infection. Hmm. So you'd get a bad flu. That would wipe out the ciliated cells, the cells that help protect your airway. And then bacteria could come in and you get a bad bacterial pneumonia. And that caused quite a large number of deaths. So what's new is, of course, the good news, we've got antibiotics, which we didn't have back then. The other thing is the flu epidemic of 1918 didn't infect everyone in the first wave. The flu epidemic of 1918 was really the flu epidemic of 1918, 1919, 1920. Hmm. So you would get subsequent waves of the new strain of influenza. So... We hope we'll be getting a vaccine, and that would prevent subsequent waves. And if you recall, in 2008, 2009, we had H1N1 enter here. That's right. And it did cause quite a lot of illness, but then we had the vaccine. And so that really um, made a huge difference for each subsequent year. So, yes, that first year was particularly scary. But the second, third, and fourth years weren't because of the vaccine, and that's our hope with this. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Dr. Timothy Flanagan, a Catholic deacon and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Alpert Medical School of Brown University. And in 1918, sorry to keep going back to 1918, but in 1918, every year after that, that you mentioned that the flu came back, it was a different virus because, or a different strain because the virus had mutated. Why did it finally stop mutating? No, it, um, each year it included that new strain. And then eventually Uh, everybody's immune to it. It's just the first wave, everybody doesn't get affected, infected in the first season. I see. So, you know, it, you maybe you'll affect, infect about a third of the population in the first wave. Mm-hmm. But the second wave, you'll get another third or 30 or 40 or 50 percent. So fast forward, so, fast forward over 100 years. And now what we're going to do with, uh, with God's help on our side is, is have that vaccine and the subsequent waves will, won't happen. Exactly. And I'm, you know, we don't know if we'll have that vaccine by next fall or next winter or next spring. Will it be six months, 12 months, 18 months? We just don't know. But one of the reasons why there's such a huge effort to really, really stop things in their tracks. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is extreme. A lot of people are going to suffer really severe financial hardship and personal hardship because of all these draconian restrictions. But they make sense because we will get a vaccine, we will get effective treatment, and also if we can slow down the rapidity of the spread, everybody won't get sick at once. But Mm -hmm. rather, it will spread, but at a slower rate. And when it's slower, and that's what we call flattening the curve. Flattening the curve means community transmission will occur, but the healthcare system will be able to manage it. And so... We have seen in 
Hong Kong, in Singapore. These measures have really, really worked, which is quite extraordinary. We have evidence that everybody changing how they do things day to day can have an enormous impact. And, and does the impact come, reducing the mortality comes mainly from improving hospital care because there's more hospital care available for the very sick? I think that is a very significant percentage of it, that, you know, good medical care and sometimes intensive medical care in the ICU, and sometimes because it's a viral pneumonia, even being put on a respirator, is totally life-saving. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it that certain, you know, when everybody gets sick at once, it overwhelms the city and the town and the state or the region. I was just reading a report in Alatia about, uh, I think, six priests that all died from one small town in Lombardy um, that was very heavily hit and so tragic and so difficult. And it really that just breaks your heart. And so our goal is really to keep the medical care system operating full steam. That is really tragic, because maybe if they had had access to good ICU care, they would have survived. I've, I've heard terrible accounts from Italy that they have to choose between patients by age and by medical condition. Yeah, it really is, and, and it, it, it really is really tragic. I think we're also going to get medical treatment within the next few months, so pretty quick. You know, we have medical treatment for influenza. We have Oseltamivir or Tamiflu and Mm -hmm. other flu medications that really do help. We'll be able to get antivirals that really will impact uh, this novel coronavirus. And that is very exciting as well. And we do have a wonderful uh, silver lining that uh, the very young are being affected as in other flu pandemics. Like in 1918, I think the, what we call a U-shaped curve, right? Very old and very young were the highest mortality yeah, rates. I, that's what, how I see it too, Gracie, because when our children are at risk, we really panic mm-hmm. and fear takes over. And, you know, we know from the gospel, be not afraid. We have to deal with one day at a time, and we need to do the best we can helping each other. And yet, when our children are at risk, it just is awful. Mm -hmm. And we're very lucky, because the young tolerate this infection really very, very well, and recover and do have immunity. So we see this with other viruses. You know, chickenpox was very common before there was a vaccine for it. And children would get chickenpox, and they would be up running around in a day. Uh-huh. No big deal. <laughs> They're amazing. But adults would get chicken. Amazing. But as an adult, you get chicken pox, and boy, you can get terrible pneumonia and just be very, very ill. So it occurs with a lot of different viral illnesses, but it certainly is the case here. The young do really well. Young being particularly children and folks in their 20s. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Dr. Timothy Flanagan, a Catholic deacon and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Alpert Medical School of Brown University. And tell us, doctor, what about the mortality rates? What kind of mortality? I've, I've seen numbers all over the map as far as what a mortality, the mortality rate from this virus. What do you think uh, is the yeah. right mortality rate? Very, very hard to know. We used to, you know, quote, 2% and often 1%. In Italy, in certain regions, we've seen a much higher mortality rate. We know that the older you are, the higher the mortality rate. So over 60, um, it's quite 
significant, over 70, over 80, and even over 90. And when you're up in the over 90 range, if you get viral pneumonia, the mortality rate can be over 10%, which can be really high and, mm-hmm. and very scary. By far and away, the vast majority of people that get COVID or the novel coronavirus will actually get feverish, have a little bit of a dry cough, have some aches and pains. They'll stay home. They'll drink fluids. They'll take a little Tylenol, and they will recover. And that's very, very encouraging. And it may be that there's been much more community transmission or community spread in many more cases than we realize. We really don't know because we've not been able to test widely, and that's coming now. Very widespread availability of testing is being rolled out. It's still going to be a few weeks because the testing is being prioritized for those that are in the hospital or those that are ill. But we are going to see the availability of testing on a much broader scale, which is really going to help us a lot. So the mortality rate, yeah. So, you know, with flu, mortality rate may be uh, 0.1%. People have quoted that. But even five times that would be 0.5%, which would be, uh, you know, certainly worrisome. But we're not quite sure yet. I read about testing that the CDC originally released a test that wasn't working very well or they didn't allow other kinds of testing. What what happened in the beginning? Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm I don't have the total inside scoop, so I'll tell you <laughs> just what I'm aware from the media just like you. Mm-hmm. But early on, they developed very good testing and they were doing that testing in Atlanta and it was centralized. Then they rolled it out to the 50 departments of health, but whenever they roll out the testing to each state, each state lab has to validate it. They get positive controls and negative controls. And the results were not very good. So there was an error. So they pulled all the tests back again. They redid it. And then they sent it out. And then it worked fine. But that probably lost us two weeks, which was really tough. And it meant we couldn't ramp up testing and get rapid testing um, as much as we would like. And for this, and whenever you have an, yeah, and no, whenever you have a new disease, they always like to. Um, the, the CDC always likes to look at all the test results. So it takes a little while to get the FDA approval for commercial testing to occur. Well, it's clear that that is just not okay in the midst of a rip roaring epidemic, and so the um, federal government said, "For now, we are going to accept really a public-private partnership. We're going to allow." private labs to test. And these private labs have extraordinarily good quality and they can handle volume, which is, oh my goodness, so much higher than a public health lab. So the Veracores and the Quest and Mm -hmm. these commercial labs, they're also rolling out testing and that's going to be an enormous help to all of us. Have other countries been better about testing and even testing asymptomatics? Yeah, I think South Korea early on said we're going to go ahead and implement social distancing. So person-to-person social distancing, really important. Second is decrease social mixing, decrease the travel, decrease the gatherings, decrease the opportunities for everybody to get together. Everybody stay put. They did that. Then they implemented wide-scale testing, both for people that had symptoms and were in the medical care system, but also they allowed drive-through testing for individuals that were concerned that they were contacts. And you can imagine how the anxiety eats you up 
and knowing that you're positive or negative can be a help. So we're not there yet where we have really opened up testing in a very broad way. And each state is looking about looking at how to do it and what makes sense for their particular setting. But we are beginning to increase testing dramatically. I mean, testing in the last week has increased tenfold, but it's got to increase another hundredfold. So we've got a long ways to go. I know many people myself personally who have been traveling recently and came back from hotspots and don't were told by their doctor there was no test available. And all, a lot of people are getting mixed messages. Some of them are being told to quarantine themselves. Some are being told not to. Um, it'll, I think it'll be really good for our country when everybody can get on the on the same page and we're all doing the same thing. So Don't I, you agree? I do. I do. But, you know, states do have different approaches and we do have different hotspots. So it makes sense to close everything down in some locales. You know, for example, closing schools, closing daycares, and for us, closing public masses, which is, you know, hits right to the heart because the Eucharist is right at the center of our faith. It's so difficult. But when you really want to stop people from getting together and having that viral ability for the virus to mix and spread, then you really have to take really what are extreme measures like that. But it's not going to be for terribly long, I hope. And it's not necessarily everywhere because different communities are impacted differently. And that's why the CDC, who I really do trust, gives guidance to the state and then the state Department of Health and the state governors get together and implement the changes they want. But you probably saw the White House has asked that we really stop having large gatherings, really gatherings of anybody over, you know, anything over 10 people. Mm -hmm. So that that's not large, that's for sure. But we all need to meet, but not meet in person. So it's distant meeting, phone, internet, that kind of thing. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Dr. Timothy Flanagan, a Catholic deacon and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Alpert Medical School of Brown University. What do you think about uh, people who have someone sick at home or an elderly relative? What's the best way to handle that? Should that person be isolated in their room, maybe, if people feel that they have some, some exposure danger? Yeah. So we know that the virus doesn't spread airborne. So the CDC uses as a guide six feet, and you don't want to be sharing day-to-day -day objects and uh, utensils and kitchen stuff back and forth. It's not that, you know, we don't really know exactly how long the virus stays on surfaces, but I can tell you from talking to patients that have been infected that the most common route, it's either direct hand-to-hand -hand, or it's sharing the same thing. Like, oh, here, use my pen. Mm -hmm. Oh, here, here's my glass. Take a sip from my glass where your hand has been touching this object and you pass it to the next person directly. So it's a very close connection, which is much more efficient in spreading. So the CDC recommends six feet apart. You can still see the person. You can still be with them in terms of giving them support and talking with them. You can pray with them. You can, you know, even um, watch TV if you're an appropriate distance apart. You're not going to sit on the couch side by side. Uh-uh. That's not okay. Mm. And you're not going to put your head together to talk about something very important where your face and your both your faces are, you know, one foot apart. Uh-uh. But keeping that social distancing is really helpful and really important. And then being very aware of touching different objects back and forth. And the CDC has very good guidance about 
cleaning surfaces, all of our cleaners, soap and water, all of our commercial cleaners are really very effective at killing viruses. So that's good news. So you don't need to buy anything terribly special. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that. So we can use Windex. We can use any of the, any of the things we normally use. We don't have to uh, mix Clorox into our, <laughs> into our cleaners. No, you do not have to do that. Nope. That's exactly right. You can use um, standard cleaners are really very effective. And wiping down surfaces makes a lot of sense, particularly if, you know, if it's common use, my goodness, then that makes all the sense in the world. But the best place to be isolated, and if you are ill, but not terribly ill, the best place to be quarantined, meaning you're not sick at all, you have no symptoms, but you worry that you've been exposed, is at home. Mm -hmm. Home with our loved one. So it's okay and it's good to be home. It gives us the, the, the support of the heart, the support of our body. You know, you can make the favorite meal for the person. That's and, right. And leave it right there. And so you don't, you don't need to be eating it with them, but you can make it and cheer them up and keep them going. And that's so important. really makes a difference. Doctor, you bring up meals. If all of us are going into a big lockdown and a big quarantine, how do we keep our, our lines of production and, and supply intact? Yeah, well, I think, you no, know, we all go to the grocery store. That's important. We just limit We work at home where it's feasible. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're running a chicken farm, you can't work at home. You got to still milk those cows. You mm-hmm. got to still take care of the crops. You still got to drive the trucks. But everybody does it in a much more intentional way. Okay. You, keep, you don't rub up against each other with very, very close quarters. You um, make sure you keep a little bit of a distance. And if you do have a a uh, respiratory illness, a cough or a fever, by golly, then you do try and stay at home and don't get out and about. My husband, everybody does. Yeah. My husband and I are both radiologists and we're able to work from home, but we're wondering about our patients at the clinics. They are there. We, everyone still gets sick. Many of my, my husband, for instance, uh, is a radiologist to mostly patients with cancer and, and also for GI patients who have severe diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. So they're coming in. They have to still be seen and still have their tests done. How can a busy, what sh- how should medical practices be approaching the crisis? So um, medical practices are all adapting very, very, very quickly. So the goal of a lot of our what are considered, and understandably so, extreme measures, the goal of them is not to put them in place forever. Mm-hmm. The goal is to slow down the spread of the virus so that there's lower rates and you don't have a tsunami or an enormous wave of infection which occurs all at once and will overwhelm the ICUs and our acute care settings. So these, um, these measures are really being put in place over the next four, six, eight weeks. And I'm an optimist. I think they're going to be very effective. I think everyone is going to partner and really do it. So some things uh, we can do, for example, if it's a routine follow-up visit, it may not be necessary to come in, where the visit can happen by phone. Mm-hmm. We, a lot of times we say, let's cancel this. And a better way to say it is not to cancel. Let's say, let's not do it in person Let's do it by phone. Mm-hmm. So many of us have got a smartphone, so you can uh, face, um, you can chat with somebody with a video link, and, mm-hmm. and whether you WhatsApp or 
or FaceTime, you can, you know, get on there and, hey, you can check, you know, talk, you can Zoom. And that's really kind of a fun thing to do. So you can look at if somebody has a wound, make sure that it's healing, and that's going to really push forward telemedicine or remote medical care um, very, very, very quickly. So it's going to change a lot of the outpatient practice in medicine where much more of it will be done remotely in that regard. So the challenge is we have to stay connected, connected to our patients, connected to our families, connected in our community, but we can't do it person to person. <laughs> Particularly during this time, we've got to hit a pause on all that and, and put that space between us and do it so much from home. Just the fact that you're able to work at home is so great, and I think that's so much the right thing to do. Doctor, you, the way you explain it seems very hopeful. I like that you that you give us this idea that it's, this is a temporary thing, that we have to be very strong about it and very brave, and, and that it, it's a passing thing, and we're going to get through it as a country, and as, as brothers and sisters, we have to look out for each other very much, don't you think? That's exactly how I feel about it. And I've seen some people say, you know, gosh, we have so many more deaths from motor vehicle accidents from, unfortunately, from addiction and drug overdose or from the standard flu. Mm -hmm. And that's true, that there have been more deaths from those, um, from those illnesses. But the problem here is this can happen all at once. And so it's the all at once factor in a community which can be so devastating. So... These efforts really do slow it down. Again, what they say, the, the, the key words that everybody's using, the flattening of the curve, which means no infection will go on, but it'll happen at a slower rate and we'll be able to manage it. And then, of course, everybody who became infected will have some significant degree of immunity. That's a good thing. And we're closer to getting good medical treatment and a vaccine. So... We're learning how to respond. So I do see this as temporary, not as long-term. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We've been speaking to Dr. Timothy Flanagan, an infectious disease expert and a Catholic deacon who has joined us to talk about the true realities of the virus and what we as Catholics can do. And he'll tell us all about it next on EWTN Radio. to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. Doctor, I, don't, I can't take too much more of your time. We only have a few minutes left, but could you tell us about your experiences in Liberia? <laughs> I think my, our listeners oh, would, be very, sure. would be very interested in this. Yep. So back in 2014, I went over and joined Sister Barbara, who was one of the Franciscan missionaries of Mary. She spent over 30 years living in Liberia, working in the capital city there, and being an infectious disease doctor, saw the unfolding of the Ebola epidemic, and so went over and joined her. And she had established an initiative to provide training and triage support and protective 
equipment support for healthcare workers to keep the clinics open and then to reopen Catholic Hospital, which was very heavily hit hmm. by the Ebola virus. We were able to do that with the uh, local medical community there over the course of about eight weeks. We were able to keep the clinics open and eventually with a lot of help and support from so many, we're able to open up St. Joseph's Catholic Hospital, which is critical for medical care in the capital. I learned a couple of key things. One is that fear is so real, and we all have it. We all have to respect it. And yet, by working together, you can still move forward and get things done and make a difference. Uh, the second thing I learned was that the community response, the community pulling together understanding how Ebola is spread, doing self-quarantine for folks that have been exposed, that pulling people together, the community was able to stop the spread of this virus. And that's our hope here, even though this is not nearly as serious as that infection. Just to remind our listeners that Ebola had a mortality rate of what? Oh, Ebola, the mortality rate ranged anywhere from 10% to 50%, depending on the city and the time and when it was, you know, at the point. So it was very, very serious. Very serious. You were going to say another thing you learned? Then I was going to say, yep, how our faith made all the difference in the world. That in the middle of it, um, we, you knew you were not alone. That our Lord was present and we were not alone. Whether in our fear or our anxiety or in the difficulties that came up, realizing that, you know, day by day, we're not alone. And that our faith made all the difference in the world. So it was it was really quite humbling to see the Liberian nurses particularly go to work each day with tremendous faith, tremendous faith, <laughs> and then them being able to provide care, even at the risk to themselves. But they were then, over time, able to become confident that they could do it safely. Wow. So how brave. Was, how brave really, of them. It was a, Yeah, how brave of them. Exactly. A lot of their families would say, don't go to don't go to work. You're putting yourself at risk. And they would say, if I don't go to work, who will see our patients? Mm -hmm. Who? And they knew that nobody else would, so they they went, and it was really beautiful to see. Today, my husband and I did our ma we, our daily mass. We did it online, and as the priest was speaking, he talked about how. There are people from all over the world participating in this Mass and, and having spiritual communion, uh, you know, with each other, with the whole body of Christ. And, and you know, God offers us these, um, these little presents, even in, in this difficult time when, when we're missing the Mass and we're worried about our, our family members and, and everything that's coming. We tend to think, oh gosh, well, I can't go to this Mass, mm -hmm. but realize our Lord is bigger than our day-to-day -day struggles, and our Lord comes to us. We just have to step forward and open our hearts. Yep. Oh, that's perfect, Dr. Flanagan. It was so kind of you to talk to us, and I, I know that our listeners will have uh, will will come away from this with with more hope and more, much more understanding, and and a greater sense of peace. So thank you so much. Thanks, Gracie. That's how I feel too. Thanks so much for your work. Really wonderful. Father Thomas Petrie joins us now with some spiritual advice on how to handle this coronavirus crisis that all of us are living through. Father Petrie is the Dean at the Dominican House of Studies in D.C., and he is also a co-host of The Church Alive on EWTN Radio. Welcome to the show, Father. Thank you, Gracie. It's great to be here. It's always good to talk to you. There's a whole spiritual perspective to this crisis um, as we're meeting it at home, as, 
as many of us are having to um, avoid mass because of social distancing. So it's really good to have your father to talk about the spiritual side of things. You know, I know most dioceses, certainly on the eastern seaboard and I think many inland, I'm not sure how many dioceses haven't done this, but I know most dioceses have canceled or suspended the public celebration of mass. And this this is especially uh, penitential during the season. That's of Lent, true. Not only, not only for the lay faithful, but, you know, really also for priests. I mean, the very reason that Christ instituted the priesthood was so that priests would bring sacramental graces to the faithful. Um, so when public celebration of the Mass is suspended at a, at a time when, you're right, because of social distancing, this virus is so contagious. It's not simply about receiving the chalice or receiving on the tongue. I mean, we know that the virus can live on surfaces, just mm-hmm. being close to other people, touching what they touch, whether it's the back of a pew or even a missalette. Um, it, it's so contagious. And, you know, Gracie, as a, as a medical doctor, how serious it can be for the aged, for the who are very vulnerable to, uh, to this virus. So, yeah, it's a painful thing that we can't have the public celebration of the Mass. It's a painful thing for priests. You know, we're sitting here, this is what we were ordained to do. I guess a couple things I might say to the faithful. First, Masses are continuing to be said. You know, I'm saying Mass every single day, and I'm offering it for various intentions that I've been asked to pray for. I offer it for all of the faithful who are suffering from the lack of uh, sacramental communion. But the second thing, and this is something we don't consider too much, is the concept of spiritual communion. You know, the sacraments, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present in the Blessed Sacrament, the purpose of that is to bring us into spiritual communion with Christ. I mean, once you receive the Blessed Sacrament and you swallow the Blessed Sacrament, um, the the, the, the species breaks down, the accidents break down, and once the accidents break down, the spiritual, uh, the presence of Christ leaves the the accidents. It's no longer there. But so what's the whole purpose? The whole goal of receiving sacramental Holy Communion is to be united spiritually to Christ. And the Church has always taught that there's a way, there's ways to be spiritually united to Christ um, apart from receiving Holy Communion, and that is to make an act of spiritual communion. So my experience has been, we started going, we started watching Mass in my in our bedroom, because we have the, the only big TV in the house is in our bedroom. And we started on Saturday, because now there's cases of coronavirus in our small island community where we live in Florida. And when we got to the point of the communion, we, we made a spiritual communion, the priests that were, wa- were watching a parish in Ireland, which is fascinating. We're enjoying the music so much. <laughs> and we made that spiritual communion and it affected me very deeply. I felt I was, I was going deeper. I was going deeper in my, in my prayerful connection with Christ than I think I do when I'm actually receiving the host. And you were you were clearly more intentional, you know, and I think that's something, you know, the Catholic Encyclopedia speaks about this, um, that it's possible when we're receiving sacramental communion at Mass to do it so unintentionally that we actually don't reap many of the spiritual benefits. I'm sure that's true. So that when you make a spiritual act of communion, it is actually quite possible you're you're reaping more spiritual Mm -hmm. benefits because you're doing it more intentionally. Now, the ideal, of course, is to be as intentional about the spiritual aspect when we're, in fact, receiving the sacramental 
Holy Communion, having both together. But it's to say that the spiritual act, the act of spiritual communion, like the one you made, is not in fact lesser than receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion, but in fact might be just as good, and sometimes in certain instances even more efficacious and and better, because the spiritual communion is the point and the purpose of the sacramental communion. It's uh, one of these silver linings I'm finding from being in this uh, in this coronavirus epidemic is one of them is having a lot of my children at home that I wasn't expecting to have, and it's fabulous to have them. And another is this idea, is this wonderful feeling of spiritual communion. And I think when I when when we go back, many of us when we go back to receiving sacra- in the in the form actually of of the of the host, that we are going to be more intentional and more affected and more purposeful and praying more deeply when we receive. And I think the same will be true of priests, you know, when they're once again celebrating Mass with the congregation, with the people, they'll be, it will be for us also a time to be once again grateful and, and to remember that this is, uh, this is a reason for the Mass, that the faithful might receive the nourishment. You know, I, on that point, I would say that all the Masses that are being celebrated, even though there is something lacking when the faithful are not present, the Mass, every Mass continues to be of infinite value, of infinite worth, because it is the sacramental representation of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the way that the graces of that Paschal event of Christ flow into the world. So, the very reason that you're able to make a spiritual communion and have it be efficacious is precisely because the Mass exists, because it's being celebrated. All the graces in the world come from the Masses that are being celebrated, whether or not you're present at those Masses or not. Explain to us, Father, how it is that during the Mass we are present at the cross. The Mass is a sacramental representation. That doesn't mean we're somehow put into a time warp and we're physically present at Calvary. But it does mean that the very thing that Christ does in his humanity on Calvary, suffering and dying, and then of course rising again on the third day, he is united to his divinity. So it takes on an eternal sort of character. And the Mass is a sacramental sort of pathway, if you will, into that eternal character so that what the graces that pour out into the world at Calvary through the resurrection are in fact channeled through this through the liturgy, through the Mass, that makes us present because it makes present the very graces of the event itself. So we are in a way present at the moment of his passion and his and his uh, dying. Absolutely. And if you listen to the prayers of the Mass, especially the Eucharistic prayer, what you hear is language of sacrifice and offering. Mm. In every Mass, it is Christ himself who is offered up to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's one way to think of the Mass. The Mass is a prayer to the Father of Jesus Christ, who is both priest and victim and altar, offering himself through his church to his Father in a sort of eternal sacrifice, the one sacrifice of Christ. It's not a new sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about our other sacraments, Father? What about confession? This seems to be an important time to keep up with confession. (laughs) 
Oh, absolutely. And you know, the Holy Father has really encouraged priests to go out and to bring the sacraments to the faithful, the sacrament of confession, the anointing of the sick. And if you look at Catholic media, especially Catholic social media, priests are getting very creative. I I know priests are having drive-through confessions, so to speak, where they're sitting in a parking lot and people can pull up and... I love that. Yeah, they're the only person in the car, but they have cones so that you're six feet away. I'm calling. I'm going to hang up with your father and call my parish priest. (laughs) Tell him to start doing this. I mean, this is something, you know, priests are getting creative. What about sacramental processions? What do you think about that? Speaking about suspending masses, masses were suspended in Milan in the 16th century during the plague. They were suspended during the Spanish flu in various places in in 1918. St. Charles Borromeo, in the 16th century, one of the things he did was have mass outside in the major intersection of the town so that people could see him celebrating mass. And in many cases more. So many priests, like our parish priest here, he is in charge of the school and the the parish and the ministries, and everyone's turning to him with so many needs. And he's all puzzled. He wants to help everybody, and but he doesn't want anybody to get it. Infected. We already have some infections in our parish. Even one woman, if our listeners could pray for her, her who's in the pregnant and in the ICU. Oh no! See, yeah, this is a, it's a horrible it's a horrible virus. And uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to the day when we have herd hum- immunity and vaccine available. I think it's uh, I mean it can't come soon enough. And what about yourself, Father? Tell us about how you were caught in in all this because I know you were well, caught. I was caught. I, I flew under a couple, a couple line, a couple wires, as they say. I was in Israel last week making a pilgrimage, and I got into Israel just fine. Of course, Israel um, is very cautious. They have a lot of security. They're kind of famous for their security since you know they're surrounded by enemies. By mm-hmm. enemies. but um, you know when I got there, it was fine. They shut down Bethlehem because of the coronavirus, so I didn't get to go to Bethlehem. But I was visiting the sites of our Lord and. I came down from Mount Tabor. I actually drove up Mount Tabor. I came down from Mount Tabor, and my phone was just lit up that um, I needed to get out of Israel, that they were going to be shutting down the airport and travel, which didn't turn out to be entirely true, but it was, uh, here I was at the foot of Mount Tabor. Do I take a left and go on to the Sea of Galilee as I had planned, or do I go back to Jerusalem, pack my things, and try to get on an earlier plane? And my guardian angel was working overtime, gave me a real, <laughs> real sense of doom and foreboding that if I need this, I needed to go back, I need to get on a it's plane. It's like, leave Israel on, now. <laughs> yeah, I got on a plane. The only thing they could do was get me to France. So I got to France. I was supposed to spend then two days and pick up the rest of my itinerary to get back to the States. Um, but uh, even then, that very night is when President Trump acknowledged, uh, announced his travel restrictions to the States. So I woke up three o'clock in the morning, French time in Paris, to my two texts from France. You got to go to France now. You got to go. Oh, my so. gosh. Yeah, France is very hard hit. All over the all over the place, and so I was able to move my flights up. But so I basically just spent a night in France, in Paris, trying to get back to the states, and I got in just under the deadline that President Trump had set. Uh, so I got in Friday. the The deadline was Friday night. Otherwise, I would have been stuck. And we see, I mean, how how tragically impo- how difficult all these airports are. You know, they're waiting for hours to be screened. Um, I've been sort of self-isolating since I've been back. Um, 
I have I've shown no symptoms. I don't think I was very near anybody, and Israel itself was not a hot spot for uh, for the coronavirus. Do you know if if priests are being allowed to visit hospitals to visit the sick and give them less rights? I think most priests are, you know, because they can be just like medical doctors. They can be put into sterilized gowns and wash their hands and put the put the gear on. And there is way there are ways to anoint using cotton balls that you would then burn afterwards, so you don't have to come into physical contact. Some priests are doing that. I've not. I've not. No one in this house, because we're not parish priests, it ha- hasn't been requested mm-hmm. of us. But I do know some diocesan priests are are doing that. I mean, it's the same. I mean, doctors. You know, are they're they're first responders on this, and they're they're often going to be the ones to catch it. So I'm praying for a lot of the doctors and nurses who have to be in ICU units and who are going to be taking care of the sick. I feel like there's a lot of loneliness going on being created by the coronavirus. I think it's it behoves all of us. I'm sure you agree to be thinking of our neighbors. Well, my next door neighbor, for instance, was widowed just last year, and. Uh, I'm, we need to, I don't know how to, maybe we can arrange a time when he walks out and we can talk over the fence, but I'm worried about him being lonely. Yeah. And I think making phone calls, you know, calling him could be easy. It could be a good thing to do. And, um, it's, it's, I think we're just being excessively cautious on all of this and, uh, but finding creative ways to interact and to support each other is going to be the order of the day. Father, we're coming up to the end of our time, but I wonder if you could tell us if you can think of what are some silver linings do you think that are going to come out of this experience for us spiritually? I think, I think certainly, you know, this intentionality with to receiving Christ in communion uh, that we spoke of earlier. I think that's one of the big silver linings. I think also uh, that a lot of priests are having to remind themselves and learn how to celebrate Mass without a congregation. It's something many priests, especially diocesan priests, were not really, because they always have a congregation. So it's re, I think it's rekindling. It can rekindle in a lot of priests' hearts the efficacy and the power of the Mass, even when there is no, there are no faithful present. And then I think finally just uh, our, our longing and our need uh, for community and for each other, you know, when, because we're not going to experience that so profoundly over the next few weeks. Thank you so much, Father Petrie. I'm glad that you're staying healthy. I'm glad you avoided the coronavirus and all those countries you were in. (laughs) Yes, I am too. I am too, very much so. Thank you for having me on, Gracie. Thanks, Father. Bye. God bless. And now, as is customary, Father Roger Landry offers us a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with the Church tomorrow on the fourth Sunday of Lent. For many of us, this is a conversation that will unfortunately happen outside of Mass, since the coronavirus pandemic has led to the cancellation of Mass across many dioceses. But what Jesus communicates to us in dialogue this Sunday is meant to be a sign of great hope for all of us during this time of so many changes, as well as concern and prayer for those struck by COVID-19. The Gospel Jesus cures a man blind from birth, but he does something very different than in all the other miracles in which he cured those who had no sight. Unlike in all the other cases, the blind man doesn't cry out for help. He's just there. It becomes the subject of a theological question from the disciple about the cause of his blindness. Jesus states that the reason the man was blind from birth was to allow God's work to show through him. His whole life of darkness until that point was so that he could encounter the saving power of Jesus. From that moment onward, be a tremendously conspicuous example of God's own light shining ever more brightly through him. 
That truth influences the way Jesus performs this miracle because Jesus had two healings in mind, first a physical one for him and then a spiritual one for him and for all of us. The Lord doesn't keep his social distance from the blind man, but spits on the ground, makes mud with his saliva, and then goes up unbidden to the blind man, smearing his eyes with mud. The blind man in the gospel could have easily thought that someone was making fun of him or abusing him. It's probably happened often. But the Lord is not done. Jesus tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The blind man could have reckoned, what a stupid and pointless hassle. Make me dirty and then send me who can't see to wash in a pool where I could easily fall in and drown? Jesus, however, must have given that command in a way that inspired trust. And by the blind man's willingness to carry out this simple imperative Jesus gives him, he embarks without knowing it on the great adventure of faith, on the exciting journey from darkness to light. Jesus allows this man, unlike the other blind men he cured, this is the second difference from the other cures Jesus worked, to participate actively in his own healing, so that through the process he might receive not just the ability to see the physical light of the world, but also a much deeper light, the light of faith in Jesus, the true light of the world. Three and a half weeks ago, Jesus did something similar to what he did to the man born blind in today's gospel. We went up to someone acting in his name who smudged our foreheads, not with muddy saliva, but moistened ashes. Gave us a two-part command, the very same directive with which Jesus began his whole public ministry. Repent and believe the good news. This was Jesus' pathway for us to participate in our own healing during this blessed time of Lent, in our own coming from the darkness into the light of Christ, in our own exodus from sin to love, in our own Passover from death to life. We might have been tempted to consider the more or less this more or less an empty rite, something symbolic, but Jesus wanted to work in us during this time a true miracle of healing through our participation and trust in his two-part therapeutic process. The pathway for the cure of our blindness begins with repenting, which means turning away from the life of sin that blinds us. Sin darkens the intellect and distorts the will, so that often we can no longer even see the good clearly or choose it when we do see it. The repentance that's part of our cure means recognizing that sin has left us partially or totally sightless, that we're blind and that we need the Lord's help to see. The second stage in our cure, Jesus told us on Ash Wednesday, is believing in the good news. Jesus says to the man in the gospel, do you believe in the Son of Man? The physical cure of the man, a miracle that caused a tremendous stir among the people in Jerusalem, allowed God's works to shine through him was merely a prelude to a spiritual cure that would involve not just leaving darkness, but living in the light of Christ. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man responds with a faithful willingness, as well as a humble recognition of the help he needs. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You have seen him, Jesus replies, and he's speaking to you now. In the healing Jesus wants to carry out in us this Lent, he asks the same question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is the gospel incarnate. Believing in the good news means believing in him. With similar humility to the man healed by Jesus in the gospel, we're called to say, show me, Lord, that I may believe. With that docility, the Lord can then show us in new and deeper ways, you have seen him and he's speaking to you now. To come to see Jesus anew, to hear him speak to us now in every moment of our life, to come to look on all things with the light of Christ, that's the whole part of the Lenten adventure of faith. 
These 40 days, even if we're living in a desert of shelter-in-place situations at home, are a gift from God to help us to leave the darkness caused by sin and see Jesus in all things as they really are, as he himself sees them. At a practical level, how is our vision supposed to change this Lent? What does it mean to be cured by Christ of our spiritual blindness and to see things in Christ's light? In order for us to appreciate the miracle Christ wants to work in us this Lent, I'd ask you first to think what it would have been like for the man born blind returning from the pool of Siloam. He had never seen anything, and now he could see everything. He could see colors. He could see the splendor of the temple. He could see where he was going. For the first time, he could see himself reflected in the pool. He could see the face of those who were talking to him. He could see the face of Jesus. His whole life would have changed. A similar change is meant to happen to us when Christ heals our sight and helps us to see everything with his light. To look at everything, including things like the coronavirus pandemic, through the lenses of faith. To see things as God sees them. And therefore, to see all things accurately. Practically speaking, it means hearing Jesus say in the various events and people we encounter through the day, you have seen him and he's speaking to you now. Jesus is speaking to us in the midst of this situation. He wants to lead us from whatever darkness we may be experiencing into his light. Well, many of us cannot enter Jesus' home this Sunday. He wants to enter in our home and turn all the lights on so that we may see we're not alone and take hope and confidence from the fact that the one who has conquered darkness and death is with us until the end of time. With the extra time he has given us during the second half of Lent, let us continue that consequential and healing conversation. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. You can read his homilies there and also listen to the audio. You can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. You can listen to us on the radio at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130, or listen to the show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy in meeting this crisis that we're all in. And you go with our prayers. 